this is Kara Foster from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Madisonville, Kentucky, and you're listening to our sermons podcast. And if you want to find out more information, you can connect with us at www.madisonvilledisciples.org or come in person at 1030 College Drive, uh, Madisonville, Kentucky. Subscribe and enjoy these podcasts. As we continue our way through some of the great prayers of the Bible, I could not not choose this prayer today from Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. It's a beautiful, brave prayer that he offered. And Isaiah is one of the most beloved Old Testament prophets, 66 chapters long in that book. Isaiah covers a lot. He lived in the 8th century BCE, so roughly 800 years before Christ, and he helped to lead his people through a challenging time, as known as the Babylonian exile. Their beautiful temple would be laid in ruins, the people would be scattered, they'd be led and ruled by a foreign army. These were hard years, to put it mildly, and Isaiah would bring a challenging word of accountability and judgment upon God's people, but also a word of hope and expectation. Is it any wonder that people that followed Christ would look to Isaiah and see the promises of a Savior? When our passage begins, King Uzziah had recently died. Now, King Uzziah was the king of Judah, and he had led a relatively peaceful reign of 52 years. We know from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that it talks about the king's reign and that it was that he was a good king and Judah prospered during this time. But when the king dies, as you can imagine, after 52 years, a crisis emerges and enter Isaiah here in the midst of this time who has a vision of God on a throne. A reminder of the one who truly reigns supreme. And there are angels that Isaiah calls seraph or seraphim. And they're singing, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah's eyes behold this vision. And he's suddenly overwhelmed with the reality of how inadequate and undeserving he feels of this moment. He actually says, I am lost and I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, who am I to get such a vision? He feels inadequate for this moment. And I'm going to read beginning in Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1, that leads us to this prayer that Isaiah prayed. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at their voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I'm lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. 
And the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. As Isaiah's eyes beheld this vision of God and angels and all their glory, he suddenly becomes confronted with how undeserving he is. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips who live among a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you ever had a moment where you are confronted with your own brokenness, your own mistakes, your own sins and regret, whether you're sitting here in this beautiful space or at night when you can't sleep. Just this week I was talking to someone who's six months clean and sober and she told me that it was hard for her after the drugs got out of her system to suddenly see her life clearly. She didn't like what she saw. The brokenness, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Isaiah feels this in this moment. He doesn't like what he sees when he comes face to face with the glory of God. You know, occasionally I look around my own house and I think, oh, we're doing okay. This place doesn't look too bad. But then you throw open the curtains and the sunlight hits the floor and suddenly you're horrified by this whole world that's living among you that you wanted to not see. That's what it's like for Isaiah in this moment. He suddenly sees his dirt and he doesn't like it. And it's interesting to me that the very thing that Isaiah claims, unclean lips, is the very thing God will use from him to be a voice, to be God's prophet, to speak a word to God's people through a challenging and heartbreaking time. He would challenge them, and yet he would also offer a word of hope to them that these days would not last forever. God used his mouth, the very thing he was ashamed of. But here's what happens in Isaiah's vision. The angels, and I think this is just a fascinating and beautiful image. In his vision, the angels take a piece of coal from the altar and touch his lips. His sins are blotted out. He is forgiven. And right after God tells him that, he hears, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. It's good to remember that God does not use the perfect or the ones who always have their act together. God loves to use broken and imperfect people. God calls Isaiah a man so aware of his own brokenness and how far he had to go. And yet God called him to be a prophet, a voice to the people. I think of Paul, the Apostle Paul, this one-time Christian hunter who became the greatest Christian evangelist the world has ever known. You know, people said he, um, he wasn't a looker, that he wasn't a good speaker. He, we know he lost his temper. There was occasionally t that mysterious thorn in his side that bothered him so much, and we don't know what it was. And yet God used Paul to shape early Christianity and the likes we've never seen again. 
Now, when God called Moses to be a voice to lead his people to freedom, God, Moses had plenty of good excuses. He said, I'm not qualified. I don't know enough. Nobody will listen to me. I'm not a good speaker. I'm slow of speech. And finally, when none of those seemed to work, he finally just said, God, send somebody else. Even the disciples, even Jesus' own disciples, the people who knew and loved Jesus best, so often we see in the Gospels that even they got it wrong at times, where they missed the point. They argued about who would be the greatest among them. They argued about where somebody would seat, sit in heaven. They let their fears and their egos so often get in the way, but God used them. That's how it works, using imperfect, broken people to be God's voice, using broken and imperfect people to be God's hands, to use broken and imperfect people to go where he goes and to love as he loves. Here I am, Lord, send me. I just started reading this memoir by um, a man named Jim McCloskey, who is the founder of Centurion, which is the oldest innocent project in the United States. It's for decades, they've been helping people who are innocent, who've been wrongfully convicted, get out of prison. And Jim was raised in a religious Christian home. He joined the military and then eventually found his way into a pretty high-powered business job. And as he got into his mid-30s, he began to be disillusioned by the work. He really wanted more. He wanted more meaning. And after 15 years of not going into the doors of a church, he found his way into a local Presbyterian church and really just fell in love with Scripture and the Bible and, and really was amazed by the work of ministry that was happening in his church and what his local pastor was doing and he wanted to be a part of it and he felt called to ministry and he went to Princeton Theological Seminary and in his second year he had to have an internship as you do and yes many would choose church to do their internship he chose on a whim prison ministry because he didn't know much about it and um, the chaplain at the New Jersey State Prison interviewed him and would later say that he chose Jim because Jim seemed very cocky and uh, proud in his interview and thought prison ministry would certainly humble him in all the right ways. And so uh, Jim started, he was assigned to cell block B, which had 40 prisoners in it. And the very first day there, he met a guy whose nickname was Chiefy. And Chiefy immediately told him, that he was innocent, that he did not do what he is in prison for. And Jim, of course, did not believe him. And, but Chiefy wouldn't stop talking about it. In fact, you know, he would, he would reiterate all the time that he, he might be a heroin addict, but he was not a murderer. And he would beg Jim to pay attention to his case or to talk to his attorney. And um, he eventually kept saying, if you would just read my trial transcript, if you would just get the trial transcript, you would, you would see that there was a great injustice done and that I didn't do this. And Jim took the transcript home, read it word for word over Thanksgiving break. And um, he came back from break and he saw Chiefy and he told him that he had read the transcript. And he said, do you believe that I'm innocent now? And Jim said, 
yes, I do. And he said, well, what are you going to do about it? In his memoir, Jim lists all these wanderings of his life, you know, the, uh, the decision to leave business world for ministry, the decision to return to church again after so long, the decision to work in a prison instead of work in a church, the decision to be in cell block B that led him to Chiefy. And he writes about this moment, he says, so many intricate little movements, a complex ballet, all designed to bring me to this place, this moment, this decision. You can take that any way you want. My dear friends who are not religious call this just coincidence. I call it providence. I also call it the luckiest moment of my life because for the first time in my life, I knew my purpose, my mission, and it was an important one. I was to take the most horrible injustice there is, putting an innocent man in prison and make it right. I believe this was more than a decision. I believe this was why God put me on earth. And what I admire about Jim's story of finding his calling is that he didn't leave cell block B that day and head back to Princeton's beautiful campus and try to forget that conversation. He stepped into the arena. Here I am, Lord, send me. A guy who knew nothing about the criminal justice system, a guy with no experience in the legal field, decided to try and do something about it. And I, I wish I could tell you all today that there is some magic formula, some steps you can take to always know and figure out how God is calling you in your own life. I wish I could give you that. You know, some of us do get visions. Some of us get nagging hunches that we can't let go of. Some of us get roadblocks and wandering roads and missteps along the way until we find the right one. But I will say this today. I think right here and right now, we're living in this age of anxiety with a lot of uncertainty around us. And frankly, I think we in the American church, we are unaccustomed to that feeling. We have lots of divisions in our nations, lots of uncertainty. We have our own life stresses, work, family, home, business, a nation that really, I think, has yet to figure out how we are going to grieve these almost 200,000 people that we've lost to this virus. But what if, in the midst of all of this, we started with Isaiah's prayer to let his prayer be our prayer too. Here I am, God. Send me. Use me and my life. When Isaiah prayed this prayer, he didn't know what was to come. He didn't know how long or how hard the road would be, and yet he dared to say those words, Here I am, use me. I can't begin to know how or where God will use your life, but I do know this. What if instead of trying to forget <laughs> that you didn't hear it or pretend you didn't notice, what if instead you stepped into the arena? Here I am, God, send me, and just watch what God will do. Amen. Amen.